Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't minimize what it means to be a woman, a woman of color, a black woman specifically in this, this world. My experience is, is quite unique. Born in Harlem, she was named one of Billboard's branding power players while global VP at Spotify. When Danielle Lee took her current role as chief fan officer at the NBA in early 2020, the world had just changed. It was her job to help navigate it. That story right now, I'm Steve Parker Jr. This is Parker on Tap. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Steve. Happy to be here. Yeah, the same. It's, it's good to talk with you again. Thanks for taking the time today. Um, well, look, I want to I jump right in. You know, so you're a leader in the world of marketing, media, and technology. Your career's given you a wide vision for the world, um, and you have accolade, accolades to prove it. The Business Insider named you one of the most powerful women in mobile, not once, but three times. That means you're doing something right. Um, so. Anyone can win once, but three times is different. Adweek has named you one of the most indispensable executives in marketing, and Billboard names you one of branding's power players. But before we get into all that, in the current day, I'd first love to know more about you. I always find it interesting to understand where someone's from, how they were raised, essentially what's that part of life that impacted, what makes them tick and who they are today. So who is Daniel Lee? That's a great question. And I love talking about my origin story because it is such a big part of who I am and how I operate in the world. So I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in Harlem. Um, you know, my childhood was a, a very, um, I would say, dark and real experience. Um, back back then, Harlem was a very challenged place. Um, this was in the midst of the crack epidemic that you know faced our country. Um, you know, dealing with a lot of poverty, crime, um, drug addiction. Um, and so I grew up in that setting, right? Um, going to New York City public school, but I also grew up in a home with a lot of love. Um, and I grew up with parents that taught me that I could be and do anything I put my mind to. Um, there was a high emphasis on education and excellence. If I came home with an A, it was, why didn't you get an A plus? And so, um, you know, for, for me, education was an opportunity to change my circumstance, right? Um, and, and really change the tra trajectory of my life. And so, um, you know, I was a straight A student in school. I was high achieving. Um, I also was very independent, um, you know, commuting uh, by myself and taking care of my younger sibling. Um, and so I, I, just, I just grew up with a very strong sense of self. And then at the age of 13, I left home to go to a prep school, a boarding school in Massachusetts um, called Concord Academy. And, you know, I left the, the most diverse city in the world to go to uh, an environment that was very homogeneous and could not have been more different. Um, it was a small school of 300 people, um, very academically rigorous. Um, and very affluent, right? Um, most of the, pretty much all of the students that went there came from money. Um, so at a very early age, I was exposed to what it feels like to be different and how to navigate and succeed and thrive in a world that you're not really a part of. Um, and so those, a lot of the lessons that I learned both from my childhood and through my experience in high school really shaped how I approach my professional life um, and learned life lessons that have made me very, very successful in thriving in, in new spaces. And what precipitated you at 13 leaving to go to Concord Academy? I mean, was that something that you wanted to do, something your parents saw an opportunity for? 
I didn't even know about boarding school. So it was definitely not um, something that I uh, was, was pushing, but, you know, I think to be completely honest, it was um, really my dad's motivation to get me into a better environment. Um, teenage pregnancy at that time was rampant. And, um, you know, my dad would say to me every day, you know, you're one bad decision away from ruining the rest of your life, right? Like, don't get pregnant, don't do drugs. And so it really was an opportunity to get me out of an environment where I could become a statistic at any moment to um, really just shifting the opportunity set for myself. Right. And when you're that age, I mean, you know, and, and I had parents that, that were, you know, tough on me in lots of ways, but very loving in others. And, um, you know, I always look at those things and wonder and think about which pieces of it motivated me yeah. and, which, and which pieces of it were just sort of just things you heard and passed through you at some, at some level. But, but it's funny because as I get older, each year I think of something that I thought didn't really matter that much back then, but I'm like, oh, I see that in myself now. I mean, so 100%. yeah, so you yeah. have those experiences yourself. Yeah. You know, I think for, for me, it was, you know, growing up as a, a young black girl, it was, you had to be excellent to be qualified, right? Um, you had to overachieve. Um, you had, to, you're, you're representing all of us in, in these spaces. Um, and so that is a, a burden and a responsibility that you don't quite understand at that age. Um, and, and you're still trying to figure it out, but at the same time, you know, like, to be honest with you, after my first year, I wanted to leave, um, the boarding school. I, while I had a great first year, it was, you know, okay, this was a nice little experiment. I'm ready to come home. And my dad was like, no, you can't give up. This is an opportunity of a lifetime. I was on full scholarship through a program called a better chance. I'm very proud ABC alum. Uh, and, you know, I, I recognize now that I'm an adult the, that those four years set me on a path and gave me opportunities I would have never had. I was living in, um, I spent a summer living in Spain after my freshman year, um, you know, learning in an immersion program, living with a family, learning Spanish. They spoke no English at all. So it was like sink or swim. Um, you know, traveling internationally at the age of 15. Um, and, and I see how that played a role in um, me being able to step into a global role with ease, right? And feeling comfortable in any part of the world, popping off planes after, a, you know, a red eye and walking right into presentations. Like that, those types of experiences really did lay the groundwork for me to feel comfortable in, in every space. Yeah, I think those global experiences make such a huge impact. You know, my roommate in college was from Spain. Which part did you go to by chance? I lived in a small town called Cáceres, um, which was on the west side, actually pretty close to um, to Portugal. And okay. we would get together, our group would get together weekly and take little trips to, you know, Madrid and Barcelona, Seville. Um, so it was a, it was a great experience. Yeah, it's 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 a beautiful country. I I got to go to Bilbao my first trip, so up in northern Spain, and it was wonderful. Well, you so so after that, you went to Columbia University, and and then you also eventually got your MBA at Columbia Business School as well. Um, you know, your your first then you went after the after business school, um, you went to work at Showtime, where you had marketing responsibility for some really tremendous original programming, Weeds, Dexter, The L Word, among others. Today, original programming is all the rage for, for, you know, for everyone. It doesn't matter which organization you are, whether you're in, in, in true programming or not, it is the rage. But in 2004, it was still in its infancy. I mean, this was new. These were almost experimental in a way. What did you learn in that role that with that really, that really rich original content uh, that helps you today as an executive? Yeah, you know, it's such a great point. Um, original content serves as such a big differentiator for businesses. And um, that was very much the case for Showtime. I think the thing that really struck me the most about that experience was it taught me to be bold and take risks. Um, I had a great uh, leader and mentor who um, was a creative. She was a rule breaker. She really 
encouraged me to push the envelope. And because we were, you know, I was specifically marketing our on-demand and HD platforms, which were brand new to market. And we were literally educating consumers on the value proposition around um, why you would watch something on demand versus linear, which seems like obvious now, right? <laughs> no, but back, but back then it was like, who would ever watch on demand, you know? Totally. <laughs> well, and there was a lot of um, uh, reference around protecting the legacy part of the business and making sure linear, um, you know, linear usage didn't decline and be cannibalized by um, on-demand viewership. So it was a bit of a delicate dance, but, you know, I think between the provocative nature of the programming and also um, Alicia's leadership style, it really gave me the confidence to bring new ideas to the table, to be very experimental. And I really had a love for this intersection of technology and content and entertainment, right? Um, that really teasing that apart and, and growing and scaling new businesses um, became something that um, really was a thread that followed me throughout my career and guided a lot of my decisions um, and the moves that I've made. Yeah, I would imagine a lot of that helped a lot this past year, and we'll get to that shortly. Um, okay, so so then you decide, so then after Showtime, you, you dove deep into product marketing innovation with AT&T for a few years and helped develop a lot of things that we use today, really daily, in fact, geofence, geofencing texting solutions, location-based mobile marketing solutions. I mean, was that departure from an entertainment business at Showtime to a more corporate environment, AT&T, a challenge in any way? And what did you gain from that experience? You know, my, my years at AT&T were really formative um, in terms of grooming me as a leader. Um, the, the, the approach that AT&T takes is very structured um, and deliberate. Um, you know, leadership programs annually, um, you know, coaching and developing opportunities, moving leaders across the business to learn different areas. Of, of the company um, and to grow and, and to really become AT&T lifers. Um, and so over the seven years that I was there, I was in this um, really scrappy startup part of the business called the Media Innovation Group, which was running a bunch of experimental um, marketing programs to grow the AT&T brand and really attract a younger, um, a younger consumer. Um, partnering with HBO and WWE and MTV. Um, and one of the projects that I led um, was around testing mobile advertising. And um, that became a huge growth driver for AT&T over the course of the next five years. Um, and so being on the ground level of a startup within a massive um, media and telecommunications company um, was just a huge opportunity for me to grow. Um, I led, wore a ton of different hats. I led everything from digital strategy to our go-to-market um, planning, um, really kind of leading our, our sort of sales channels externally with, um, we had John Tapnian who's selling. Um, so it was, it was just an opportunity to like put my arms around a lot of different things. And that allowed me to one, show what I could do, right? Um, and deliver results for the business. And then two, um, grow and, and, and learn how to promote the work that I was doing. You know, my approach very early on in my career was like, keep your heads down, do a good job, you know, put points on the board. But I, I very quickly realized that that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough just to keep your head down and do a great job. It was really, really important to talk about your impact in the business. And then also talk about what you want to do next. Otherwise you could end up sitting in the same seat for, you know, indefinitely. And, and that wasn't something that would be very fulfilling or satisfying to me. So no, well, I think what you just said is so important for anyone, regardless of where they are in career is to not only do a great job, but go sell it internally and show others what you're doing, but also help edu educate others so they can continually improve because then you sort of make yourself indispensable in many ways. 100%. So, you know, because a lot of the things that we were, I was working on were um, pilots and experimental, it was a lot of, you know, learning how to influence people that didn't report to me, 
um, learning about the different systems and, and um, ways of working across the business. Um, we got a lot of latitude as we were small and the revenue we were bringing in was a little bit of a rounding error in the beginning years, but as we grew, we became a big spotlight in the business. And that just you know, gave me um, more responsibility. I became a, a people leader for the very first time. I made the transition from being part of the crew that went to lunch every day to now your management, right? And so navigating some of those shifts um, was, was super important. Um, I also had kids, right, um, over that time frame. Um, I have two, two kids. Um, I was a young mom. Um, my boss left, uh, you know, when I came back from maternity leave and, and put me up as a successor. And, you know, I was, I was faced with the decision of, do I continue going after my, you know, career ambitions or do I pull back and focus on my family? And I decided to do both. Like, you know, here, I'm a new mom and, and here's what, what that means for me. Um, but I also am very interested in growing here. And um, I think when you become, you, 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 you realize you're not indispensable, no, no one is, right? But I think the more that you articulate um, the impact that you're having on the business and um, really show up in a way that um, is inclusive, shows that you're, you're a trusted leader, you, um, invest in building the culture in grooming sort of that next branch of leadership of under you. Um, it really does, <laughs> it, it does force leadership to think about, you know, do the calculus of what's it going to cost me to replace this person. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Um, so, so that, that is kind of how I thought about, you know, both growing, growing my career there, um, in the midst of also growing my family. Right. Well, and, and I'm going to ask you more about that in just a bit, in fact, because I was curious about that as a working mom. Um, and, and so I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, but you go from, okay, so if we move on, we'll, we go from taking risk at Showtime to structure and being very deliberate at AT&T, even though it was new and innovative. But then you decide, all right, I'm going back to entertainment. And you take this role as global VP of partner solutions at Spotify in the last few years, especially, it seems Spotify has become so ubiquitous with not just music, but our overall overarching culture as, as, as really in the world or really any country in which the, 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 the app is available. But you help drive global trends in music and sports, fashion, and you also help create, you know, See It, Be It, which is an initiative that empowers women in creative leadership roles. What's the biggest lesson you learned at Spotify taking on all those different moving parts? The role at Spotify was a really special one because it was a true culmination of all of my professional experiences, right? Um, from bringing sort of that big data understanding and understanding how to monetize audiences, which I really cultivated at 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 and T, to understanding content and storytelling and, and sort of that side of my experience at Showtime. Um, and then certainly the work that I did at Vivo, just kind of breaking into the music space, it really was a culmination of, of all of those experiences. Um, but it also offered something completely different, which was bringing, helping to take a company public, which I, I hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to the opportunity. Also, you know, streaming audio at that time was still relatively new here in the U.S. It was only five years old. Um, Spotify was only five years old at that time in the U.S. Um, and 10 years old in its entire lifetime. Um, so it was a, a fast-paced young organization that had massive ambition um, and was really just shifting um, and and. and kind of bringing the music industry back into, into the black. Um, and so I inherited a team of about 50 people sitting in 12 countries. Um, and it was a, a very different leadership challenge than any that I faced at my prior organization. But I I'd really built all my teams from the ground up everywhere that I've been. Um, and so this was um, an exciting opportunity to get uh, you know, 
company was growing at 75% year on year when I joined. Um, we are about 2,000 people globally. So still quite small in the grand scheme of things. Um, and, you know, I think the things that I took away from that experience were a few, you know, I would say three, three really. One, um, there was this, this high regard for transparency and arming smart people with information, good information, because they'll make good decisions. And that is something that really stuck with me. There wasn't this protective hierarchical approach to data and information sharing. It wasn't hoarded as a, a means for power. It was very much democratized. Um, there was also a high regard for having a growth mindset. Grind, growth mindset. So, um, you know, taking risks, moving fast, making mistakes, learning from those mistakes, and sharing those learnings, right? Um, that is something that I I've taken with me into, um, you know, to the MBA and beyond. I, I feel like that was something that really differentiated the culture at Spotify, and it made everyone better, right? There wasn't this, this penalizing um, sort of approach to making mistakes. It was like, oh, this is what we thought, this is what we did, it didn't work, and here's why, and this is how we would do it differently going forward, and I really appreciated that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a rich experience, and I, I, you know, I love what you just said about transparency, you know, with the data not being used as a means of power, because, you know, within our ad agency that we built, Levelwing, you know, one of our three core principles is transparency. And so we give all clients full access to all their data. They control their billing. They have access to all information that's related to them at all. And so, whereas I think a lot of people in our industry, a lot of agencies particularly use it as a means of power to control and own something. Yes. And it's not ours. Like the client should own it. And I think it's such a liberating experience when you're allowed to, to operate in a transparent manner. Um, on another episode of, of Parker on Tap, I spoke with Andrew Hawkins. I don't know if you know him. Um, he goes by Hawk. Um, it's more how he's more widely known. He's also a Colum uh, Columbia Business School graduate, by the way. Oh, cool. But he works with um, Maverick Carter and LeBron James, uninterrupted, amongst some other things that he's doing. And, you know, he and I talked a lot about the importance of being seen and heard. In other words, being seen and heard in voice or otherwise, it's important for anyone to experience that in this world. What does being seen and heard mean to you? It's a great, it's a great question. I think for me, it's um, seeing my talents, hearing my perspective, um, but seeing all of me, right? People say, I don't see color. No, you, I want you to see my color, right? I want you to understand um, my point of view, my experience, don't um, minimize what it means to be a woman, a woman of color, a black woman specifically in this, this world. My experience is, is quite unique. Um, and so when we partnered with Can Lions to really take, be it, be it to the next level um, and invest in the next sort of class of creative women um, or, around the world, it was very much with the intention of um, elevating them, right? Investing in them. Um, the program is really exceptional uh, in that it really kind of creates a curriculum and an experience at um, the Cannes uh, Lions Festival, which is a global celebration of creativity um, and, and really puts these women gives them access to the, the biggest leaders across the industry, um, gives them access to tools and content and programming that they otherwise wouldn't get. So it's a massive, massive investment and certainly puts them on the map. So we were excited about celebrating those diverse voices, um, talking about the importance of uh, diversifying um, and, and bringing greater representation at the senior levels of um, all of our organizations. There's just massive work that needs to be done there. And it makes the business stronger, right? It's not just a, an effort to say, oh, you know, we, we're, 
we're doing good by diversity. It's also about um, it being a business imperative and, and the results are clear. Yeah. And well, you said something I thought was really powerful where you said, you know, you want to be seen and heard as a full person, right? Not just for your talents, not just experience, not just color, um, but also your point of view and everything that comes along with that. So I want to, so let's talk a little bit more about that in context of a few things, because I think you do stand in a unique place in this world. I mean, just based on the experiences we've heard thus far, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up, the, the experience you had when you left home at 13 to go to a prep school and, um, and then up to present day. But, you know, you're a female business executive. Yeah. You're, you are a, a black business executive. You're a mother. I mean, those three things for, for lack of a better term, let's for labels, if, I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, but let's call them what they are, I guess. Um, they bring with their, their own individual weights into any conversation or any feeling or any emotion that anyone could have. And there's so many hurdles that as a society we're working to overcome with each of those. From what I hear and see about you currently, you're able to bear that weight and, and possibly quite successfully. But by, but by the way, by no means am I saying like um, Daniel Lee's arrived and risen above all of this. And I recognize that's likely a daily ongoing battle in, in many ways. Um, so I don't want to pretend that there's not a heavy responsibility that comes with those. I mean, even earlier when you were talking about being a mother and having to make that chat, that change or that decision between do I work or do I stay at home with the kids? You know, that's a tough thing. I know for many mothers to make a decision on, because you can have guilt about not being there at all moments. Although I personally think it's good for them to see that mothers can go to things other than take care of them. Um, but I believe your voice um, is, is strong and you, you've been a great listener to consumers in our culture throughout all of your roles in this industry. Um, you have unmeasurable value of things that you've learned and created. So any perspective that you can give, I mean, that's a lot to, to digest and unpack, but what sort of perspective and experience can you share with everyone that could be so meaningful to them? So, you know, it, when I first became a mother, it was, um, and, and a VP, um, it was a, a very challenging, um, set of circumstances for me in that I was, um, the only black person, black VP in the department at AT&T. All of my peers were white middle-aged men, um, who, had wives that stayed home and took care of their kids. Both me and my husband worked. I was the youngest, um, likely the most um, decorated with degrees um, and black and a woman, right? So I couldn't have been more different. And um, I really struggled with my confidence. Like, how did I get here, right? How, how did I earn a seat at the table? And um, I struggled to find my voice in that, in that moment. And I remember um, a peer of mine, um, good friend, Frank pulled me aside and he was like, you know, we actually wanna hear what you have to say. Um, you're here for a reason, like you've earned the seat. You, you, we contribute in these meetings and, and I will never forget it. Like it, it really struck me that my perspective is different. And that is one of the reasons that I'm here. And I should use that. And, and, and frankly, that, that wasn't the last time that I was the only one, right? In every job since then, that has been the case. And I've shown up differently because of that experience. Um, understanding that my difference was one of my superpowers. I had a perspective that no one else had. I've, ha I've lived an experience that no one else has lived, right? And so bringing that into the boardroom um, into the C-suite conversations really does uh, offer um, a competitive advantage for the for the entire business. Um, so that is that has shaped how I've shown up. Like when I think about um, you know at Spotify, they would do these global um, summits where you know the top one percent of the company would get together. I'd be the only black person in the room right, um, globally, and we do these, you know, twice a year. Um, and I would always sit in the front of the room, I always made sure that I had 
asked questions. I always made sure that, you know, I was part of the team presenting when it made sense um, and was bringing content forward to share with the group. And so, you know, I think that it's important that we don't let our difference become the thing that makes us feel insecure or um, not as confident when we walk into these spaces where we don't see other people that look like Yeah, because it's because it's amazing. Like no matter how much success you have, all of us, and if anyone says different, they're lying, I think, have have insecurities about something, right? Yes. I don't care how good you've had it or how bad you've had it. Everyone has their own insecurities about something. You just mentioned your, your, that you felt your difference was a superpower because I'd read um, where you said as a black woman, um, it, excelling your strategy to excel in the business world was, is not a, uh, it's not a level playing field, right? That, that approach. And so you talked about making sure your impact is undeniable, that there's an importance of clarity and connecting it back to the needs of the business and your superpowers, where I guess yeah. for you is bringing that difference into the boardroom, into those meetings as a VP, or even when you weren't a VP and having that voice be heard? 100%. Mediocrity is not an option, right? No. I don't have the, I don't have the, the luxury. Show me, some, show me someone that's done that and won. <laughs> I don't have the luxury of being mediocre. So um, I show up and, and I make sure that one, I know how my work is contributing. Um, so that's, that's the first thing. And I, and I know that People can work hard, but it's really hard to do that consistently. Yeah. And I've been able to do that consistently and put and show those results and put points on the board. So let's take that as the baseline, right? Um, but I also think it's important to advocate and um, use your voice and create space for those that are underrepresented. So if I'm the only woman of color in the room and I um, have a perspective that isn't broadly known or um, you know, a, a point of view that isn't understood by the, the sort of um, the dominant culture around the table, I have an obligation and feel a responsibility to share that. And you know, a lot of the work that I did at um, Spotify from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective really was about. Um, talking about the black experience there, right? Um, giving context to the the results that came out in the employee survey, um, and and as the black um, the, the executive sponsor of the Black Employee Resource Group, felt a deep responsibility to coach, mentor, be let you know create space for um, people that didn't feel seen and heard all the time. Um, and so there's a lot of work to be done, not, and this isn't unique to Spotify. I mean, this is the case, I would say at most, most, in most workplaces, um, there, you do feel, a, I certainly felt a, a responsibility to, um, have those courageous conversations, bring that point of view forward. It's not always a popular um, topic, but um, definitely felt like it was important for me to, to do that. That's wonderful. Well, let's talk about, you know, current day and, and your work at the NBA. So you're the chief fan officer for the National Basketball Association and oversee the brand and advertising strategy for the NBA, NBA 2K and the G League. You know, I, I, I will share with you that I was on a Delta flight between Atlanta and Las Vegas on the night of Wednesday, March 11th, uh, twenty. Oh, wow. And I was watching ESPN and that's when the breaking news hit the NBA suspend the season. And that moment for me, as well as millions of others, obviously just was shocking. You know, up to that point, there have been a few conferences canceled, but nothing as large as, as the NBA. Right. Yeah. And so then, you know, that next morning, you know, it felt unfathomable. Right. But then that next morning, dominoes begin to fall and, and the college basketball conference ch championship stopped. Uh, March Madness was canceled. The ATP tour was canceled. Other leagues, events, concerts, they all became, they all screeched to a halt. So, and then this is, you came to the NBA in the first period of this COVID crisis, like, you know, right after all this happened, like, first of all, what the hell were you thinking? <laughs> and then <laughs> why did you decide to take on this role at this specific point in time? Well, first of all, you have to be fearless, right? Uh, the, the, <laughs> the, 
season isn't going to be suspended indefinitely, right? Right, right. Um, it was also, I came here for an assignment that was all about transformation, transformation, transforming marketing and the brand overall into more of a direct-to-consumer um, brand. And that was an exciting opportunity. So that's that's why I came. Um, you know, the pandemic and the social justice movement, um, all of that unfolded in the midst of my transition. And I will say that certainly the pandemic forced us to reimagine the fan experience. So it, if anything, it, it accelerated the opportunity to test um, new and, and innovate in terms of how we were bringing fans closer to the game. Um, so the first assignment was really how and when we come back um, and how do we do that responsibly? Um, I said to my team, this is the greatest leadership challenge we likely will ever face um, in terms of how we do this and how we get this right. So it, it's been a remar remarkable year. Um, I don't think any of us could have anticipated that it would be this last this long or <laughs> the journey would take this many turns, but absolutely no regrets. Well, I mean, and you had to overcome tons of obstacles to restart the season, right? The, the bubble was a tremendously organized effort. Um, yeah. And then fan engagement came by way, a lot of it, by these 17 foot tall video boards that we all saw on TV and, and yeah. could, could see as though there were people in the fans and people seemed like they had a lot of fun with it. Um, I mean, what stands out most to you as most significant throughout all this effort? Well, um, certainly from a fan engagement perspective, um, I was really excited about the ways that we um, leverage technology, everything from creating a home court feel to um, certainly leveraging the, the virtual fan screens and um, having a, a smart influencer strategy around that in the lead up to finals, um, having everyone from, uh, you know, of course, one of my favorites, President Barack Obama uh, graced us with, uh, with, by attending one of the games. Um, but I think for me personally, the, the moment that was most significant was um, with tip off uh, to the restart. Um, the, the entire game presentation and, and seeing the players kneel um, for the anthem with their Black Lives Matter uh, warm shirts on was a very emotional moment. Uh, and it was the culmination of a ton of, of work, a lot of pivoting, a lot of kind of redoing our strategy. And, you know, they, we were just getting new information every day. Um, and so, you know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the decision to use our, um, our season, our restart as a platform to really advance the movement and drive change, meaningful change in our community, um, and to see the players play such a pivotal role in that, that was, uh, that was the biggest moment for me. Yeah. And it was beautiful. I mean, if you watched it, you know, you couldn't help, but feel it and the hair would stand up movement on me it stood up on my arms right and and it was a beautiful thing to see to see the players and see everyone you know having themselves be heard in such a such a really in a, in a very quiet fashion right I mean is the best way I could put it so they didn't have to use words to make their presence felt um were you there at that moment were you in the bubble and, and were there for for the actual tip-off or no I, I wasn't, no. I think, you know, for us, the utmost importance was keeping our players um, health, safe and healthy. Um, so, you know, the protocols were quite extensive to do that and limiting the number of people on the ground was was a priority. Yeah. I mean, during during this entire, you know, season after it started, after, after it kicked back off, or kickoffs, that's football, but after it tipped it's back off, off <laughs> better, a better way of putting it. Um, I mean, what was a couple of quick questions for you? What was the most difficult thing to manage? And also what was the best and most endearing part of the experience? Or maybe that's the one you just shared. 
Yes, yeah, certainly the the most endearing part of the experience or powerful for me was was the um, was opening night mm-hmm. and um, seeing the brotherhood. Um, but you know, I think the entire effort just coming out of that, we were just so proud that we actually accomplished it and you know crowned a champion. Um, at the end of the season and completing the season and, and doing that without any of the players testing positive um, was a, a huge effort and a tremendous sacrifice, not only by the players, but coaches, the refs, the staff that was on the ground. Um, it, it was a monumental effort. So um, I think we all came away with, from that with just so much pride and um, a lot of lessons learned um, and an opportunity to continue to, to push the envelope in terms of um, how do we use this game as an effort to do good in the world. Yeah, and it's almost as though it was written before you know, any of us even thought about anything because obviously early in the year, although it seems so many years ago, but early in the year, Kobe Kobe Bryant had had passed. Yes. Um, and then having the Lakers come back around and and win the title, where it didn't look like early in the season they had really that great of a chance of getting there. It was uh, a storybook ending. It really and was. We, yeah. We really couldn't write a better ending. Well, let me ask you something else. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate throughout my marketing career and now as the CEO and founder of Level Wing to work with nearly every league from the NFL to the PGA, the National Hockey League, National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NASCAR, IndyCar. I'll throw the Olympics in for fun. <laughs> we're doing our third Olympics campaign now. But the NBA, um, the NBA though, really seems out of all the leagues to have such a, a much deeper understanding of the mindset and the pulse of the world than others. Like, and that's from my personal perspective. Mm-hmm. I could be completely wrong. You could prove me different or you can prove me right. But why is that? Like, why does it seem to have such a deep understanding of what's going on in the world? Well, I mean, I think one thing is that we are fortunate to have a very young, diverse, multicultural and tech savvy fan base, right? The youngest and most diverse of any sports league. Um, and so that, for one, helps us stay connected to the culture. Um, and then I would say, too, is, you know, you look at our players. They are, are such dynamic individuals. Um, everything from being entrepreneurs and business leaders to um, doing work in the community and giving back. Um, it's it's. They are, they are really just dynamic and exceptional people. And I think they're unafraid to use their platforms to um, talk about what's going on. Um, they're also multi-talented. Some are, you know, big into the fashion world. Others are, you know, making music. So there's this intersection that happens with the game. Um, you know, basketball connecting to uh, music, fashion, technology, um, which are all very dynamic spaces. So I think that helps to, to, to keep us relevant um, and helps us to continue to shape um, and reflect culture. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt. It, I think that helps keep it relevant. And, you know, and as I was thinking about that, you know, it's one of the few sports that I think truly has a worldwide audience, right? Some of the others don't yes. quite have the same level of global sort of reach, if you will. Um, well, I mean, look, after a brief break, which seemed like you guys took a week off, or maybe like one night here, you guys can go have eight hours sleep and we're going to start again. I mean, what, what are you most engaged with, you know, this season and what are you most looking forward to? Yeah. So this season has been, um, really different in that we're playing across our 29 arenas. Um, and we continue to work with the players and um, the players association on um, the things we want to commit to and the changes we want to um, impact in the world. Um, so that work is still ongoing. Um, we are preparing for, um, you know, 
well, playoffs and, and finals are kind of the next big moments for us. And so how do we um, drive a lot of engagement and energy around that? Um, and, you know, in my role, just thinking about the world that I'm, that I brought in a new leadership team um, with a really bringing diverse experiences from different parts of not just sports, but um, entertainment at large. Um, and, you know, we're on this journey to become a direct-to-consumer brand. So a lot of the focus is on understanding fans more deeply, um, really, you know, not just amassing data, but how do we understand the different fan journeys, right? Um, not just to watching games, but also to driving ticket sales, to driving merch sales, to driving, um, you know, app downloads and, and subscriptions. So um, that is a lot of where I'm spending my time is just kind of really understanding our fans in a deeper way. Um, then using that to power our storytelling. Um, how do we talk about the NBA um, differently and, and bring more fans into the game? Um, and then just measuring everything that we're doing um, to really understand how we're impacting business outcomes more broadly across um, the league. So it's an exciting time of, of, of building, frankly. Um, and uh, I couldn't be happier to um, be part of this just really incredible moment in time for the league. And is there is there a um, like a little known way that fans could engage that people aren't aware of? A little known way. Well, um, one of the things that I thought was really exciting um, was we had 30 new um, camera angles and we had uh, players and coaches mic'd up um, during the restart. So players could, I mean, fans could actually customize their feed through the NBA app, right? And um, looking at different camera angles, listening to different audio um, from the game. So it's, you know, a bit more of a personalized experience. So I think that's one that I'm really excited about. Yeah, I don't I don't think that one's widely known as it probably should be, but it's really amazing. I it's agree. A great, it's a great experience. Um, so Danielle, so do you have, you know, I mentioned the word principles. Do you have one or two principles or core values that guide you in your life and career? I mean, you've mentioned a lot in this conversation um, that probably apply, but what guides you? Gratitude. Gratitude is a big one for me. Um, I wake up every day and um, focus on what I have. Um, I'm so, so fortunate and so blessed. Um, and so living in gratitude is one of the things that keeps me joyful. Um, you know, I... I talked about my, my childhood and, and how, you know, the challenges that I faced growing up, um, you know, I, I'm really living my dream. Um, the family that I, that I'm raising, um, the career that I've built, um, I'm so, so proud to kind of be in this moment and I never, um, take that for granted. And I, I would say, Kind of hand in hand with that is um, never forgetting who I am. That for me is key because you know you can get caught up in the circumstances of you know never getting too high on the highs and too low on the lows, um, drawing from all that I've experienced and all that have, has gotten me to this place. Um, that to me is, it's so important. So not getting so caught up in the hype of, oh, you're ranked on this list or you got this award or, you know, you're being recognized for that. Getting back to who I am at my, at my core and what, what got me to this point is something that keeps me grounded. And, um, well, you, and you mentioned joy, right? And I think, um, I mean, and this is just a small thing, but I've always thought about there's a big difference between happiness and joy like happiness can come and go right it could be any little thing you could laugh at the squirrel in your front yard it can make you happy but but it doesn't bring you like full joy on a regular basis and it's such a, a a big gap between those two just those two words and what they really stand for 
So last question. So after all of your experience, prior roles included, and taking into consideration the last year of like these full worldwide changes and experiences, what's the future of sports, entertainment, and digital engagement look like? Well, that's a big one. Uh, so I think what we'll see is um, continued innovation in bringing digital and social experiences into live sports. Um, where you see things that ha happen in the game um, that trigger moments on social media um, and ways for fans to interact with the game. So um, we certainly have done things with AR and snap filters and lenses and um, you know things on TikTok challenges. But I think you'll see more of that come together where um, social media can impact uh, and re react to things that happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'm fortunate that I did get to work with the NBA once with the Knicks. Um, unfortunately, oh, the poor Knicks, man, they just, I always feel <laughs> bad for them. But um, yeah, we got to connect. We were the first, we, we were able to connect them to Ticketmaster and be able to track it on the back end. Um, and they were the first team in the league to be able to do that. That was, this is going back 12 years ago, probably. But, uh, but it was a fun project. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for sharing your time, your experiences, um, sharing yourself as a full person and, you know, and, and all the best to you and your family. But I appreciate the time today. Thank you, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. I'm Steve Parker, Jr. I want to thank you for listening to Parker on Tap. It was so great talking with someone who started such a high profile job with the NBA at the beginning of COVID and helped navigate it so exceedingly well for the fans. It was such a treat talking with Danielle Lee. The most important thing I took away from her was to embrace your differences as a superpower by bringing your full self to the boardroom. And Danielle's experience, that's her as a female executive, a black woman, and a mother. All of these create differences as a superpower. We can all embrace our differences. Thanks again for listening, and please share Parker on tap with a friend. You can also rate us on your favorite platform and find out more at parkerontap.com. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.